The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. And good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And the first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're fortunate to uh, be joined by an Olin faculty member, Alexandra Koso-Strong. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to it's great to have uh, another of a string of colleagues uh, from Olin on the show, and and but um, and Alexandra, uh, you'll talk about some of your very interesting educational research here in a moment. But in the first segment, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit better. And so, if I've done my homework, you're in your second year as an Olin faculty member. Uh, yes. You're you're an aerospace engineer, and you're a scholar of engineering and design education more generally. But let's, uh, let's go back in the time machine or log cabin or, or back in time somehow. And, and uh, what were some of the early experiences that influenced you to, to this point in your life? So I would have to say that education has been pretty pervasive across my life. I mm. grew up in a household of educators and coaches. Um, and I used to be caught playing school with my brother. I just loved kind of creating these lessons and doing this. He did not necessarily enjoy it as much, but I really enjoyed it. And then even in my undergrad career, I didn't know it at the time. I couldn't say that when I was a freshman or a sophomore that I could tell you that education was going to be in my future, but I constantly found myself, whether it was serving as an advisor to first-year students, running seminars for my sorority sisters, TAing for my aerospace courses. It's uh, looking back once I got to grad school. It was really interesting to kind of see how important education had been um, in my life up to that point. And when you say you're um, you were in a household of educators and coaches, what what kind of educators? What kind of coaches? So my grandfather on my mother's side was a professor at the University mm. of Northern Iowa. My grandfather on my father's side was a football coach for a long time, and he did a lot of work in adult education at Ferris State University. My mother worked for multiple different colleges. She was a Spanish teacher, 
um, worked in career development. My father uh, was a football coach for a long time as well. So just lots of examples, and we have a few faculty in our family and things like that. And we don't get uh, – the show's actually based in Douglas, Michigan. We don't get Ferris State mentioned too many times on the show. <laughs> that's kind of cool that you that you did. And, and um, so that's really interesting. And, and also on the show, we're very interested in the uh, – what Mark Somerville and I called uh, unleashing experiences in the book A Whole New Engineer. And, and uh, so I'm curious what – experiences or individuals uh, or both uh, helped give you the courage to, to take risks, to take chances, to take initiative, fail, and then go your own way? Yes. So it's interesting. So I would say I had many mentors and I have, you know, from my family, but also professionally, as well as the constant support of peers. But yes. I think if I think about unleashing experiences, there's sort of my introduction to engineering education that I think was a very big unleashing experience for me because I don't think, again, when I was an undergraduate that I would have imagined becoming a faculty member and working on projects in the engineering education space. So that experience really started when I um, started my master's program. I was a systems engineering student at the University of Virginia. And yes. through a comedy of errors, we'll say, I... Um, Got, it was August, right before classes started, and I didn't have an advisor or any form of research funding, even though I was supposed to. So I scrambled around and was talking to a bunch of different faculty about what their projects were and who I could work with. And at that time, my plan was to come into graduate school, graduate school, learn about operations research and systems engineering, and then go off and do consulting for Latin American engineering companies. That was the dream at the time. And nobody was really doing that type of work. And one of the faculty that I'd been interested in working with was on sabbatical. And so it was kind of, again, this comedy of errors. And I was meeting with this one faculty member um, about a project that he had where him and another student were creating a study abroad program to take students down to Argentina to work on some systems engineering projects down there. And he said to me, this is the closest thing I have to what you're looking for. Um, but that's not funded. What I do have funding in is an engineering education project. And I looked at him and was like, what is engineering education? Having no idea. Well, that professor was Professor Reed Bailey, and he was my master's thesis advisor. And we, from that point, engaged in a little six-month experiment of, why don't we give engineering education research a shot, see what you think. And by the end of that year, it was something I had become really passionate about and I sort of had, reflecting back on my undergraduate days on when I was in public education, kind of thinking through, wow, I really am passionate and excited about transforming educational, like, transforming educational experiences and designing educational experiences for students that could have a positive impact on their lives. Well, that's a great story. And I, I actually, I love the diversity of stories that people tell and this, you know, the 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 serendipity that exists and and the this you know we're we're sort of um, we're pinball this is kind of bouncing around a pinball machine sometimes and we like to think of our lives as being this kind of carefully planned and orderly thing but it, it often is that the coolest stuff that happens to us is is as as you just described not uh, comedy of errors was what what you called it 
Right. And what's really interesting is there was an assignment the second semester I was in grad school where it was an educational faculty member asked us to look back on our lives. Well, first to write down where we are now and then to look back on our lives and ask ourselves, what are those critical incidents that got us to where we are today? Mm. And that is always really interesting to think about those serendipitous moments because that sort of says, oh, my goodness, without like this experience had a left turn that I just didn't even think about at the time but has been really important since then. So I find, I find that reflection really interesting sometimes. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's gorgeous. And so you, um, um, and yeah, let's follow this a little bit chronologically. So you, so, okay, so you're at, you're at uh, um, UVA and then, yeah. and then you had to, uh, uh, but now you've got this passion for ed- doing ed- engineering education research and you went to Georgia Tech. What, mm-hmm. what took you there? So one of the things, so when I guess one part of the story just to add in there is while I was at UVA, I got involved in the American Society for Engineering Education through mm-hmm. um, my advisor as well as some other faculty on UVA's campus. And I really found my people there. And while I was interacting with graduate students and my cohort from other institutions with engineering education research faculty, I came to think about kind of what would, going forward, if I pursue a career in academia, what might I want? What is the environment that I might consider focusing some of my work? And I came back to my undergraduate degree and said, I would really like to go and study aerospace engineering and see not only what tools and approaches I could take from aerospace and bring back into engineering education, but also what impact could I make on the design of these really complex systems and the educational experiences that we provide students to prepare them for that type of design and engineering work. So I had talked with many people and did a lot of research around which aerospace programs might make sense for me, and I found the Cognitive Engineering Center at Georgia Tech, which is co-run by Dr. Amy Pritchett and Dr. Karen Fai. And we talked a lot on the phone prior to me coming about the work in human factors and Mm -hmm. cognitive engineering, which is really around the design side of human factors work. And it just made sense to come to do some sort of work in this engineering education space within that center. Um, Another enabling piece was that I was an NSF graduate research fellowship recipient. And so I had, I had a tool in my hand with this funding to be able to do a research project of my own design. Yeah. And so it worked out really well that I ended up there. Yeah, beautiful story. And so then, so you go and go there, and then um, you graduate, and um, I think you went straight straight to Olin. What, uh, you know, what was? Uh, is there an Olin story? How did you end up at Olin? <laughs> Yes, there's definitely an Olin story. So I didn't know, what's funny is I went to undergrad at MIT just down the road from Olin when the first class was here. And I didn't know it was existed, to be completely honest. It was the Engineer of 2020, the National Academy of Engineering book, where I first got my introduction to Olin. And I found it so interesting, especially being involved in engineering education work. What's Olin College? This just sounds so amazing. And so in graduate school, I had an assignment for my teaching practicum course to interview a faculty member from a non-research extensive university. And so I used that assignment as an excuse to 
reach out to an Olin faculty member who is also well-known in engineering education, Debbie Chakra, and see if she would let me interview her. So she accepted, and it was a very, we had a great conversation just about, you know, how she got to Olin, why she liked her position there, the work she was doing, and I will never forget hanging up the phone, talking to her, and thinking to myself, this is the first time I've really heard a job description that I've just gone, this is, this is the work I want to do. This is what I want to mm. be doing and where I might want to do it. Beautiful. It just, yeah. What she discussed was so inspiring from that perspective and this idea that I could be in a place with a lot of people who were very inter- and multidisciplinary um, and really purposely think about the design of my courses as well as kind of how I would engage with the world. So the next year as I was finishing my PhD and I was doing some postdoctoral work in the Center for Teaching and Learning on campus, I saw their new job search ad. And at the time, prior to that, they were very focused searches. And there was no way an aerospace engineering call was going to come out because they don't have an aerospace engineering degree at Olin. So when they had the open search, that really was, again, kind of this, there's an opportunity here I could apply So I spent the next several months talking to other Olin faculty, talking to some alumni, and even engaging with a lot of people at Georgia Tech to think about what what would go in an Olin application, what would I, you know, is this potentially an amazing place for me to go, and Mm. now I just have to apply. And so I did, um, and ended up getting a position here, but it it was wonderful to kind of piece together and hear about so many things from so many people that really were important to me. The values were aligned, the types of activities that I wanted to be doing. So that was why Olin. Yeah, it's actually, so it's, I'm listening and I, I just heard a, like a second, you, you described earlier that actually maybe more than one moment of clarity. And, and I just heard another moment of clarity around um something that that you aspired to in in a very concrete kind of way and that that's kind of cool and those things happen and so now you've been there what this is you're finishing up your your second year is that right yes yeah okay and so um what's it been like uh you know so whenever it's been a long time since i took my first job as a faculty member, but I sort of have this vague memory of it being like drinking from a fire hose, trying to get your research going, getting, you know, you're teaching these things that you've never taught. What's, what's it been like uh, uh, two years as an Olin faculty member? So it's been great, challenging, fun. I've learned a lot. Um, oh my goodness. There are so many words, uh, <laughs> yeah. but thinking, kind of thinking back on these two years has been really interesting because I just know from kind of week one when I walked into the first faculty meeting and we were talking about assessment strategies and experiments that faculty were going to try, and I was just going, this is amazing. We're talking about all the stuff I've been so excited about for so many years. Um, And then even now, like starting to think about, you know, how do we engage with the world and support an educational transformation more broadly in these deep wonderful discussions with faculty. It's just so many things that I had really wanted to be working on, and I've just had the opportunity to work on those here. So that has been really great. I do have to say, yes, the beginning is hard. There are moments where you're going, oh, my goodness, there's just so much going on, or I'm not sure exactly where to move on this. But Olin, um, the academic side, the faculty, 
have done an amazing job thinking about that those first few years. And so one of the big things that happens when you come here is you engage in co-teaching. And that is a really helpful way to kind of come into the Olin environment, to learn from your colleagues, and do so in a way that's not as much of a fire hose as I would say if I was handed three courses and saying, go teach them. That would be a very different experience. And then the other big thing that I've noticed in these first two years is Olin values taking risks. And so I've been able to engage in lots of little experiments with my research, with other external impact work that I'm doing, with course development um, in a way that's helpful for me, but also is part of what um, we as a college want our faculty to do. So that has been really nice from the get-go. Yeah, great stuff and a great story. And and, um Actually, I think we we need to take a little bit of a break. But after the break, um, like to kind of come back and talk a little bit. You're you're doing some interesting work on faculty agency, and like to talk about that a little bit. How about that? Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Alexandra Koso Strong uh, from Olin College, and uh, stay with us. And we're going to talk about uh, some interesting work on faculty agency in the next segment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, The second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution or organization. Uh, And uh, the second segment is also sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. 
And we're back with Alexandra Koso-Strong from Olin College. And, and Alexandra, we were talking about uh, some of your career, how you ended up at Olin, and, and your stories are great. And uh, one of the things I noticed in preparing for the show that um, you've just uh, gotten an NSF-funded uh, project on um, faculty uh, agency. Actually, what uh, what's that about? So, um, yes, the project that I am, the NSF grant that I was recently awarded is actually a collaborative research grant. So I think first thing is just to acknowledge that I'm working on a team with five other faculty from five very different institutions. So uh, Cheryl Bodner at Rowan University, Walter Lee at Virginia Tech, Courtney Smith-Orr at UNC Charlotte, Aaron McCabe at University of Houston, and Courtney Faber at University of Kentucky. So thinking about all of these um, other faculty that I'm working with, this team really came together and asked questions around what are the structures that facilitate change in the context of engineering education research. So we're all faculty from the engineering education research community, and we've been trying to think about in our positions, and we're all also early career faculty, how can we impact change in education? There's been, there have been a lot of projects and their current previous projects and existing projects, really thinking about how the engineering education research community is impacting change within education. Um, there are less studies that focus on that early career phase, since many of the departments have only been graduating PhDs fairly recently, um, and so yeah. the field is changing still constantly. Yeah. Um, so what we wanted to do with this research project was to start to look at those barriers and supports for making change as early career engineering education faculty, and to then think about how do we better prepare, so thinking about the graduate school experience, but also the early career faculty experience, so how do we support faculty exercising agency, so what we mean by that is taking strategic and intentional actions towards yeah. impact in those first yeah. few years. Yeah. So that's sort of the main concept of this project. Yeah, and I want to I wanna dig into your concept, but as you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, so you mentioned, you know, there's this very long tradition and history of projects to bring about change in engineering education. And, and I'm, I'm going to kind of just put an assessment out there and, and, and it's actually more of a provocation and I'm curious about your reaction to it more than whether I'm right or not. Um, that, you know, it seems to me that a lot of engineering education research has actually had fairly mixed results in bringing about the kind of change. I'm thinking about the engineering coalitions in the 90s, and when the money ran out, the coalitions, coalitions disappeared and the innovation stopped. Um, now we have the RED program and people are trying to change the culture in, in departments, and yet it's not even clear that there's clear understanding of um, what culture is and and uh, how other organizations go about changing it. Anyways, I'm painting a pretty dismal picture here and as much to provoke conversation as to actually get you to agree with me. So what? So comment. What do you think? So one of the things with this study that we really wanted to look at um, was the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, the focus is on the individual um, trying to impact change within themselves, within their institution, and then more broadly. Um, the, I think there are many challenges because education is a complex system, right? Higher education, especially, as well as in K through 12. But it is a challenge when you have something so complex to 
have transformative change just in general. And there are lots of different levers that you could use to go about trying to have this type of change. Um, And within our own work, what we're thinking about is what if one of the levers was around what an individual was doing and then their potential desired impact areas and their approaches for that? Can we better understand what they're trying to do and then possibly inform some of the things that are happening that you talked about? So the red grants are a really interesting example of departments coming together, Um, but what could be the future of trying to think about educational change? And I think that's what we hope to do with our work um, is to continue to complement what's been out there and to learn from what's been done before us. But I don't necessarily at this point say that there is a specific path forward. I just want to learn more and understand and think about what are some possible options. Well, and so I'm, so I'm, in listening to you just now, so that there's a sense. So the distinction you're one of the distinctions you're making in your own work is to focus more clearly on the on the individual in a change process. And so by and you didn't say this directly, but by implication, some of the past studies, including the Red Program and the Coalition Study, looked at things kind of at a higher level of organization, with without a close examination of um, individuals in the process and that that may be one of the lacunae that has led to the mixed I'm I'm putting my own spin on this but but might be one of the lacunae that is that the lack of appreciation of the individual in the loop is is maybe part of the problem is well, that I, is that fair So the way I would frame that is I would actually think about it from the perspective so I look at kind of where all the different change that could possibly happen, right, Um, looking forward. I think about it um, with a little bit more of an, what can we leverage is the question that I kind of ask myself is, I view constraints very much as something that can be leveraged to do some good. Like constraints can allow us to think even more creatively sometimes than if we just have a blue sky space. Um, So when I think about it from the individual perspective, I'm really thinking about, hey, we have all of these different faculty that as graduate students or as postdocs or as, you know, non-tenure track faculty, they've begun to play in this engineering education research space. They've developed expertise. They've developed their own areas of research. And now they're getting positions, unique positions in a diverse set of postings at all these different universities, these different institutional contexts how can we support them possibly having a large-scale change? And so when I think about the RED proposals, for example, I know that Arizona State, for instance, has one, and they have a lot of engineering education research faculty on that grant. And they're not the only institution that does. Um, I would That's just one example. Sure. So I think that's potentially in the future, over the next few years, we'll get to ask those questions about how the individual faculty were supported or not on these proposals, but we might not be there yet. And so I, I think with our project, we're really starting to think about, let's go down to that individual level, but let's see how we could actually leverage the fact that there's people in these positions that have the expertise and the desire to make change and see what we can do with that. Yeah, I use the term leverage, and I, I, I just for full disclosure, so my research was in evolutionary computation and complex systems, and so I'm, a, I'm aware of some of 
both the mathematical and rigorous as well as computational work in that area. And so uh, the notion of a lever point is an important one in complex system. And so mm-hmm. what, when you use the term leverage, what, what are some of the lever points um, that, that and you're exploring this, and I understand you're just starting your research, and so I'm not asked, but as you go into it, you have some some biases and some ideas about where they might where where the bodies are buried in terms of lever points or leverage points. What what might some of those be? So again, I think it's very individual and very potentially. So what we're trying to understand is we think there's also possibly some institutional context that's playing a role here in terms of the lever points. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we're we may be exploring from the individual sense is you might go, okay, well, individually, what am I trying to do in my position and how can I leverage my expertise to do that? So that's sort of one framing. But I would say more institutionally, let's say you're, um, depending upon your position, so I can use mine, for example, if I'm one of my lever points is in the course design space. So I've had the opportunity to design new courses at Olin and really think about how, what are the type of courses that I think would complement this curriculum, but also what are some things that I would like to learn in the classroom with my students, so having this co-learning experience, that I could then implement elsewhere or share with the outside world, right, to enable or inspire them. Um, so that's potentially one leverage point, is the opportunity to take what I'm doing here and then share it more broadly. Um, Another thing we might think about is the evaluation piece, so thinking about what, you know, within different evaluation structures, how might that allow us to engage with certain leverage points as compared with others, right? So I'm not necessarily suggesting particular leverage points in a solution, so not in the meadows, um, you know, whether it's going to be changing rules or paradigm shifts or things, but I'm more thinking in terms of the context and the contextual features of a university or institutional setting or a discipline, what are things that we might play with in order to enable whatever change efforts individual faculty want to pursue? Well, actually, so what I what I, I took from what you just said is that actually you started by talking about the importance of contextual different. I translated that as cultural difference. And so um, understanding different extent cultures mm-hmm. is actually a lever point and and kind of focusing on that well if say somebody ignores that and thinks it's one size fits all well then that's a problem but you and you gave examples from your own experience of being encouraged to offer great cool classes and do experimental things whereas say at at a university of uh uh, middle of nowhere, the faculty member comes in and says, here's these courses that you're going to go teach, and you teach them and um, and shut up until you get tenure. That Those are pretty, those are two pretty different cultures. And 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 actually, as I was listening, I was extrapolating to the, another lever point that was implied in what you were saying is different, different stories mm-hmm. are, are lever points. So the fact that, that, that you have a a different story told about what a young faculty member does at Olin is is greatly empowering, whereas somebody at another place that's expected to follow what's been done is is hamstrung by that comment. Yes, that I agree. I think one of the interesting things, so one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to kind of 
discuss a little further was sure. this idea of the evaluation structures or the, yep. the so if a faculty member comes in in a very different structure than let's say what I'm doing at Olin. I think one of the things that's very unique in engineering education research right now is the different types of roles and responsibilities that people who are see themselves as members of the engineering education research community, the roles they're playing on within these different institutions. And so it's they're this, it is very different in some sense, potentially very different, and we're still trying to capture all the reasons why or why not, but it's not like getting a mechanical engineering PhD and immediately going into a mechanical engineering department where you're on tenure track. Um, right. You could yeah. be part of a first-year programs department. What does that mean? You could be in an engineering education department. That is yeah. definitely a possibility, but you could also be a teaching assistant professor, or you could be embedded in an engineering department or a higher education department. And so there's just so many different contexts right now and cultures to understand. Um, I think it just leaves, I'm excited to see what happens with this research because I think we're going to learn a lot um, that hopefully we can then turn around and think about how you might implement it yeah, in that's, a program that's, or early career. That's really, that's an interesting point. The, the, um, and, and I haven't thought about it um, deeply about the way, you know, so it's actually, it's fairly, I don't know that it's unique, but it's fairly different that engineering, you know, so that, that there are now engineering education faculty who get degrees in that. That's a fairly recent phenomenon going back to, I think, Purdue's uh, um, pioneering efforts and, 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 um, the existence of those faculty and that they're now getting hired by other institutions and what they're doing and how they're connecting in. Um, it, it's, it, it is, it is interesting and it's, and, and it is a, it's an emerging phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So, and we took a little bit of a, a, a detour away from what uh, the, but I think it was a, an interesting one. Um, um, where does the where does the uh, faculty agency work uh, stand? You know, what what have you learned? Uh, you've told us a little bit about what you hope to learn. What what have you learned so far? So we are actually kicking off this June officially. Ah, so we've okay. spent the last two years doing some pilot work specifically with our methodology, and yep. also just starting to think about what are we wanted to look at general challenges that early career faculty face and sort of see if the ones we were seeing within engineering education were similar or different. So we've started to, pl- to learn, um, but we're officially kicking off in June. And part of this, because of the nature of the work, we're going to be spending a year doing some qualitative research that is in the collaborative autoethnography and collaborative inquiry space. So really looking at personal experiences as a way to explore and interrogate a cultural phenomenon so in this case, the early faculty experience. And we're going to be doing a lot of cycles of reflection and action. So, so some of that collective, so individual meaning-making, but also collective meaning-making, and then turning that into things that we're doing within our own positions. So that first year is really looking inward at our team. Yeah. And so the last two years have been about thinking about this methodology, trying it out, doing some analysis, getting into the theory, just trying to work out some of the details. So we'll be doing that, continuing that into the start, into our kickoff this summer, and then continuing our data collection with ourselves before we move outward and start to interview 
other faculty who are in, again, diverse institutional contexts and positions. Um, so that's yeah, so what, and we need to take another break. I'd like to continue talking about uh, this project a little bit uh, more in the next segment. And also, um, uh, you've been doing some interesting um, work on on using st studio teaching and design studio teaching ideas to um, to actually design new educational experiences that I'd like to talk to. How about that in the next segment? That sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio uh, with Alexandra Strong from Olin College. In the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about faculty agency and talk about Olin's new educational design studio course. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us on Wednesday, May 10th at 4 p.m. Eastern for our webinar, Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them and learn how you can join Big Beacon's three communities of educational innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And so we're, we're back in this final segment with Alexandra Koso-Strong from Olin College, and, and we were talking about this very interesting work in faculty um, faculty uh, agency and uh and uh, Alexandra, you just you mentioned to me that you wanted to set the record straight on a small point. Oh, yes. So I was going to mention Courtney Faber, one of my collaborators, is at UT Knoxville. I don't think the fans of the UT Knoxville team would very much appreciate my little mistake, so I apologize for that. Okay, yeah, that, they're pretty... Um, 
uh, loyal bunch down there. I've, I've I've been on campus, so you don't want to you don't you don't want to mess mess with them. But okay, anyways, we got that. So, um, so yeah, so this I I I actually agree strongly with your um your focus on the uh, individual um the individual as as change agent, and I I think that it's important in practical uh, change efforts to combine uh, both individual reflection and and um, and change and notions of personal change and personal intention with kind of uh, a larger organizational systemic view of in, of intention in say things like context and culture so I think you're you're going down to the individual level is is a is really important work but you know during the break we were talking about one of my pet peeves and frustrations, and I, I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with engineering education research because, on the one hand, I'm I'm really happy to see it elevated and systematized, and uh, people take it seriously. So I think that's unabashedly a, a good thing, and yet um, there's a sense in 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 being when when you take a scientific stance. You almost take an anti-practice stance. No, my job is to understand this. My job isn't to do anything about this. But hey, we're we're engineers. You're, you're a trained aerospace engineer. We, you you are in a uh, discipline that builds airplanes and gets them to fly. Um, so, it you know, at what point do we stop studying the theory of educational flight and we actually get the the damn things off the ground? So. <laughs> So I don't think we stop studying and asking questions and understanding. I think I, there has been some incredible work done in engineering education, but there's, there are lots of challenges that we have as a field, one of which is that we study things right in our own context, like maybe yeah. in the course that we're teaching. So that adds a level of complexity in thinking about how then do you move things forward beyond your own context. I think one there have also been a lot of discussions around research to practice, some different experiments that faculty have done at different places to support not only change locally, but try to support change across institution. So there's a lot of work being done in this space, and I think we'll continue to see work moving forward, and I'm, my hope is that more and more of it will be successful and adopted and used at multiple places. One of the things that I've done in particular in this kind of research to practice space is I've taken, kind of going back to our discussion of lever points, sort of the idea of leveraging um, research, certain types of research, in order to help develop practice. So in particular, and I did this as part of my doctoral work, as well as um, I'm working on with a group of Olin students with a similar model of what we call translational education research. And there have been a few others before me who have done things like this in different contexts. But essentially what we're doing is we're saying, can we leverage studies of authentic work environments, of authentic engineering practice to support the design of whether it's courses, educational models, modules, products, processes, projects, et cetera. Um, what can we do kind of moving from those studies of authentic work environments and practice into the classroom? And in particular, the way we do that within my projects has been around the creation of educational design principles. 
So it's this idea that it's not necessarily if you go and study the communication practices of engineers at different companies that you're going to take exactly what they do and put it in the classroom. That's not our intent. Our intent is to say, what, do we learn, what did we learn about the work environment? What did we learn about the things that are particularly important to be successful here, the challenges that, that, that are faced by engineers? And what might that tell us about some principles that might support a design in the classroom? And so my hope is through these principles, a faculty member at Olin or a faculty member at Georgia Tech could take them and apply them in their context. So it's not a solution of here's the course you should teach, but it's more of saying, you know, when you think about documentation in a course, in an engineering design course, you might think about how do you make the documentation assignments iterative? How do you make them, you know, something that students rely on in order to be successful, but also at the same time don't hinder their ability to do the project that they're doing, right? And so that's an example of one that we're currently working on, a design for a course here at Olin, kind of with that principle in mind. Yeah, and I, I anyway, I and I and I didn't mean to say, and I guess it was more of a frustration. I didn't mean to say that I didn't. In fact, I explicitly said that I valued my colleagues in engineering yeah. education. I just am concerned that um, there's an urgency of of actually um, in practice that right. seems, and sometimes, um, and some of the motive for jiggering the system and creating so that uh, creating engineering education departments to put people doing that kind of work on a par with people doing more traditional disciplinary work is actually a move towards status not necessarily a move towards getting stuff fixed in practice and I and you know and I, so lots of times this work calls out well we're evidence based we're this okay so where's the evidence that engineering education research is actually improving um, the practice of engineering education. And, and I, I'm concerned that there's um, insufficient concern around that question. Comment. So I think, so the one thing I want to mention first is that moving from research to practice is hard. Um, I think in the context of engineering education, it's particularly hard. It's coming from a field that didn't exist necessarily as long as many of the others that it's in an institution sharing space with, both intellectually and physical space. Um, and there's a bit of that, and this is coming up in our research project as well, is this, this challenge that interdisciplinary fields face around negotiating legitimacy, like you said, right? So thinking about kind of being able to, as a field, say, hey, we're actually doing good work that could be impactful, I think, goes is something that's difficult in some sense to do constantly because it also then takes away from, well, how do we then share, focus on the challenges that we face in educational practice? How do we share what we're doing in a way that can support all of these different people? And I think we're working on it. It's yeah. not solved, um, but it's definitely... I think it's hard, and it's something we talk no, about and, a lot. Yeah, there's... A, there's and 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 um and it's it's hard especially uh well so it, it part of the hard difficulty is is labeling it as something um separate i mean so we have lots of models of of change the the private sector is actually 
undergone intense change over two or three decades and has come up with a set of practices, a body of theory about how to make change. Now, the, that's in a different context and a different organizational structure than engineering education, but there, there are lessons to be learned um, from, from practice that could transfer mm-hmm. to practice easily. Um, the, the primary discipline of practical change for individuals in in the real world of um, again the the private sector is executive coaching, which came from nowhere thirty years ago to be become a growing worldwide phenomenon, and I don't see those models um, being. I see academic models kind of driving the train in engineering education. I don't see people reaching out to practical solutions that have actually. Um, worked as their because the because the uh, the criterion of success has been kind of rooted in sort of academic success and status as opposed to getting practical results i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not gonna push this horse anymore down down the road but i but i'm gonna give you the last word on it so it's interesting thinking of like executive coaching um i think as one potential mechanism for change in the context of engineering education. And I do think there's some bit of work that's happening. Um, A couple of the, I don't know if it's red or wider grants that I've seen out of the National Science Foundation, but really starting to think about these evidence-based practices and how we try and support faculty using those within the classroom to support obviously designing positive experiences for their students. And so I do think there are some institutions that are starting to think about both, like, including Olin, how do you, whether it's on the ground supporting change by doing consulting and coaching type work or within your university, whether it's utilizing your center for teaching and learning and the faculty developers and educational developers there, or if it's having engineering education researchers running the first-year engineering programs. So there are some on-the-ground examples, and there are probably many more that I don't even know about that are starting to kind of get at this type of change. I think one of the big, and there are many differences between the private sector and higher education that I think are important to think about um, in this context, and the history of a lot of these institutions and the history of education that also play a role, and if we don't recognize the context and the differences, Think that could be problematic moving forward, and I say we from the general people interested in sure. change in engineering education. Yep. So I think there's a lot more work to be done, um, and I'm interested to see what happens, and I hope to be a part of it. So we've just got a few minutes left in the show, and um, you're um, you're working with my uh, colleague and and friend uh, John Stolk on on. An educational design studio. Uh, in a mm-hmm. in a few words, what's that? To, what's that about? So, our educational design studio is a new upper level design elective here at Olin, and it's really the integration of us. We're having students apply a systems design approach that has them focus on contextual analysis, looking across multiple stakeholder needs and values, and also integrating educational research and other secondary sources in order to design something in the context of an educational design. Um, So the course, we focus a lot on communication and collaboration and 
kind of their yep. own development as a learner. And we do this through a series of projects within the class. So we started with two preliminary kind of systems analysis projects, really focusing on giving them an opportunity to say, here's a system. It's really complicated. It's complex in some cases. There are lots of moving parts. There's a lot of historical context to take into account. And then we moved past those two projects to say, okay, now once you have this analysis, what might that mean for design? So their final large projects are client-based projects, and there are five different ones this semester that are having the students ask them how might we questions based on the results of their systems analysis. So that's Great. where yeah. the students are in the context of that design right now, but that's where we are in the course. So give, um, we don't have a lot of time left, but can you give an example of, say, um, just pick, say, maybe the a project that interests you a lot or one that would interest our listeners a lot to give a sense of the kinds of projects that the students are working on this semester? Right. So I can, I'm going to share two. So we have okay. one on one end because you, so you can see the differences. So one looks at thinking about how might we support STEM instructors of required large classes Yep. Design for intrinsic motivation. So that's one in the higher ed space. Then a, another one is how do we support the credentialing pathways of birth support professionals? So that's actually thinking in the state of Georgia, how do we support people who are birth support professionals become credentialed? Yeah. And actually, we're going to have uh, Jeffrey Herman on the show uh, shortly to, who pioneered some of the large, uh, the intrinsic motivation and large scale work uh, at Illinois um, pretty mm -hmm. soon. So that's kind of cool that that's taking place. So we've got just uh, just about a minute left. Uh, give you the last word. What, uh, um, what would you like to share with our listeners before we sign off? So I guess one of the things that's very important to me is this idea of education as design problem and design opportunity. So I'm constantly thinking about how do we look at whether it's thinking about a course, thinking about a learning environment, a curriculum, or a college, or again, things outside of what you would consider an educational setting, how do we think about them from a design perspective? So I would challenge others to do the same. Alexandra, thanks so much um, um, for joining us. People can find out more about your work on the Olin website at olin.edu. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Alexandra Koso-Strong and Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 
visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.